I'm going to start off this episode by saying that I think Ben Green's work should be required reading, not just for people who are directly interested in AI ethics and CS for social good, but for almost anyone who spends time interacting with technology and thinks about how to use it in order to solve problems. Ben is currently a postdoctoral scholar in the Michigan Society of Fellows and an assistant professor at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy. He did his PhD in applied mathematics at Harvard and primarily studies the social and political impacts of government algorithms. He focuses on algorithmic fairness, human algorithm interactions, and AI regulation. He has plenty to say on these topics, but the real through line that I find in his work, and that I think you're going to hear in today's conversation, is this entreaty to step back a bit when we are solving problems that we think might admit technological solutions, especially when those are social problems. Problems involving people in particular go way beyond the ability of technological and algorithmic thinking to even describe. What Ben seems to want us to do is to take a step back and understand these problems in and of themselves and not pigeonhole ourselves into a particular methodology of solving them. I'm really excited by his work and I hope that you find this conversation valuable. Ben, you currently studied the social and political impacts of government algorithms, and you focus on a few particular areas, including AI regulation. And in general, a lot of your work surrounds the impacts of these algorithms and of AI systems. What was your first introduction to AI in general? And how did you get interested in thinking about these socio-technical problems in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great place to start. And, you know, first of all, thanks so much for, for having me on. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, so I really got into this area starting from a pretty technical place. Um, I did an under my undergrad, I was interested in physics, and then I went into my PhD in applied math. And my initial way of thinking about how to combine data science and public policy, and specifically urban policy, was thinking about how I could use data science methods to address urban policy problems. So I was really interested in essentially applied data science. Um, one of my first efforts in this space or experiences in this space was participating in the UChicago Data Science for Social Good Fellowship uh, between my undergrad and starting PhD. And yeah, so I was, I was really interested in applying data science, machine learning, network science tools, to think about how that could help to address urban policy issues. But as I was working on those projects, I increasingly became really aware and then interested in some of the broader social and political and regulatory issues that surround those efforts and those technologies, where, where what, what became what became sort of clear to me in pursuing some of these projects was that the, the fundamental issue or the fundamental determinant of whether a project was successful or whether a project had positive or negative social impacts was not so much on the modeling side, but was much more on these other dimensions. You know, was there high quality data? What sorts of issues were there in data collection or data representativeness? What sorts of policies were in place within the government agency that we were, that I was working on a model for that, uh, you know, what sorts of policies do they have in place? How are they going to actually respond to a model's insights, right? Is the government going to respond with punishment or with social support? So those types of issues uh, became really salient for me and sort of another relevant experience around that same time was that I, I took a year off from grad school and went to go work for the city of Boston as a data scientist. So I essentially was feeling, you know, noticing a really stark disconnect between, I was based in a computer science department and had done two years there and felt, yeah, a really strong disconnect between the types of questions and ways of thinking about government algorithms 
that felt so disconnected from what was happening in the real world or what might be applicable uh, and so on. And so I, I took a year off, took a break from research and just went to go work in City Hall, which was incredibly illuminating and interesting for me to really get a sense of what applied data science looks like within a government and how it can actually be used, which, you know, I decided, you know, certainly to come back to graduate school, not just go work for a government full time as a data scientist, but that really gave me a lens on really making sure that the work that I'm doing is relevant to practitioners and relevant to the real world contexts in which algorithms are being used by governments, not trying to or not falling into the common trap that I was observing for many of my colleagues of sort of overly abstracting government context into relatively you know, sophisticated technical problems that then bear little resemblance or relevance to the types of real world uh, applications of how these tools are being used. That's a really interesting story and collection of experiences. And what I kind of picked up from that are maybe two things. I think the first is definitely this sort of transition that I feel a lot of people in data science or ML go through, which is that initially you think it's like all about modeling, right? The excitement is what are the new AI algorithms I'm going to try? What are the new deep learning models? And eventually you realize that so much of what's important there is how you define a problem, the data you're looking at, that kind of cliched statement at this point, garbage in, garbage out, right? Especially as it pertains to things like algorithmic bias. And so it sounds like you also had that realization, but it seems like you've also gone a lot farther than most people would, I think. So the first paper of yours I came across, and we can get to this in more depth later, was Good Isn't Good Enough in 2019. And it also sounds to me like a lot of what you diagnosed in that paper, the fact that a lot of the CS for social good community doesn't really have a grounded, complete picture of what good actually means and how it intends to go about achieving it. It sounds like you went through that soul searching a little bit yourself. Is, is that the case? Do you feel like you went through that thought process in terms of your own work and then kind of looked at it in the broader community from there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful way of capturing some of that story around the, the transition away from computer science, where I think that, yeah, I really did come in, maybe not, you know, the most techno-utopian person of my generation, but certainly interested in what technology could provide and really focusing on that perspective and doing that type of soul searching and being open to new areas. And I think, you know, for me, what was really valuable were or a couple of things in terms of getting maybe more outside the typical way of computer science soul searching, so to speak. Um, number one, yeah, as I mentioned, the experience of working in City Hall, I think getting really grounded in the public policy context was helpful in, you know, sort of stepping away from computer science framings of how to even articulate what the problems are and what solutions might look like to being really grounded in that real world context. And much of my research really thinks about issues that become relevant at the stage of implementation that computer scientists tend not to think about. And then another piece was in, in graduate school, really expanding the, my coursework outside of engineering school classes, going to take classes in law and STS, uh, which stands for science, technology, and society, or science and technology studies, and uh, even took a class over at the business school on entrepreneurship and technology in the public sector from someone who had worked on that in Boston City Hall. And so I think what that really exposed me to at a pretty early stage was different ways of asking questions about technology and the impacts of technology. And I think that was really helpful that before I got sort of too deep into a CS only way of asking these questions, I sort of branched out into these other areas because what those other fields provide, um, particularly law and STS are completely different ways of asking questions about technology that step outside the toolbox that computer scientists have at their disposal. And so that really then becomes 
central in, in the work and including that good isn't good enough paper, which really looks at, you know, the limits of how the limits of the approaches that computer scientists take to trying to deal with the social and political challenges raised by algorithms and the opportunities for benefits also raised by algorithms, where certainly there, there remain to be computer scientists who will, you know, assume that technology is neutral and all of those sorts of things. But where much of the interesting action is at are computer scientists who are becoming increasingly aware that technology has socio-political effects, many of whom come to that from more of a positive angle, trying to think about how they can design technology for social good or to improve society, but also others who are concerned about issues of bias and injustice and surveillance. And then the question becomes, what can you do about that? Um, and so much of what I try to do is to provide new framings and new ways of asking questions about what that process actually looks like. And, you know, I like to, and I think having gone through some of those experiences myself, you know, I think it's particularly important for me to help other young computer scientists and data scientists sort of chart out a similar path and help to provide more of those writings and support materials and so on for folks who are sort of in my position from five or 10 years ago to help guide them on that path and help make sort of make this a much more interdisciplinary and widespread way of approaching computer science development and research. Yeah, I I love that mission and just that way of approaching things. It's really flipping the script a little bit because somebody with technical training, like myself, for example, I was a math and computer science major. When I look at a problem or I'm thinking about the social context I live in, the problems I live in, I'm probably apt to start thinking about those problems from a framework of how can I approach this with the tools that I have been trained in. And the fact that I majored in computer science and also the fact that I'm living in the Bay Area, very much a bubble of people who are also thinking about technical problems, many of whom around me in particular are thinking about AI problems. It's like, okay, what are the sorts of solutions I'm going to think of first when I'm approached with, hey, there is this problem in the world. Of course, I'm going to start thinking about AI and what it can do, most likely. And I like that approach of a lot of these problems, as you stated, are ones that expand so far beyond the technical realm. They are human problems. They are social problems. And yes, some of them, to an extent, might admit technical solutions. But I think that as you've pointed out in a lot of your work, and this is really a through line, it's a mistake to start from that technical standpoint. If we're going to approach things technically, I think that a lot of your work really gets at this. We need to start from an approach agnostic viewpoint and really diagnose the problem in and of itself. And yes, maybe the endpoint is a technical solution, but that certainly shouldn't be mm -hmm. the starting point. Yeah, no, that's that's really well stated and well summarized. And you know what, what my work then sort of captures or, or pushes on, yeah, certainly not this idea that, oh, we should never build technology, we should get rid of it, computer scientists are evil, we should get rid of them, any, any of those sorts of ideas, but it pushes back on that very computer science framing uh, that is that is so intuitive to many people. That's really how computer science is taught. I mean, there's even when you go to some of the core textbooks and so on, the whole idea of algorithms is that they provide this universal language for cleanly articulating all sorts of problems. Um, and then there's, of course, the much wider culture, particularly in the, in the Bay, but really across the country and the world that is very excited about technology as a, as a form of progress and a way of solving social problems. And so, so really then there's this question of the interface between the technology on the front end as a matter of sort of like political diagnosis and problem formulation, and then on the, and then downstream at the point of implementation and actually putting a model into practice. And so, you know, the idea in, in much of my work is not to say, you know, we have this existing set of methods for thinking about algorithms and how to do machine learning development or development of other types of you know, optimization and mechanism design and so on. But the question is, you know, how do we 
get into that process? How do we scope the appropriate places and the appropriate types of applications for those algorithms? And then how do we think about how those algorithms are going to be used in practice and the types of issues that could arise that are typically discussed as you know unintended or unforeseen consequences, but don't have to be completely unintended and unforeseen, or at least could be uh, sort of anticipated and accounted for in the design process. So on that front end, yeah, there's a much greater need for really thinking about what are the political problems uh, that are in place here? What are the types of solutions or, or really not even solutions? You know, I, I try to shy away from that word when we're thinking about you know, complex entrenched social issues is really not any type of solution for those, technological or otherwise, because they're so multifaceted and complex. But what are the types of remedies that exist? What are the notions of, or or this types or values in the society that we want to create? What are the strategies that we can achieve for getting there? And then what are the potential roles for algorithms within that process? And so it really requires this approach or or part of what I'm trying to push on and help lay out strategies for are ways of decentering technology in efforts to achieve social good or to achieve justice or equity through algorithms where, you know, we don't need to see algorithms as the only mechanism as change or the centerpiece or the most important thing. Much of what I think the places where there might be the most potential for algorithms to be beneficial are actually more on the periphery of social problems, where instead of saying, you know, here's this algorithm for policing, and now the algorithm is going to do everything for policing, maybe the algorithm is uh, being used for other purposes. Maybe it's being used to support advocacy groups that are pushing for changes in policing practices or supporting legal organizations that are pushing for legal oversight of policing and so on. So if you actually, you know, often there's this idea, you know, that I think computer scientists fall into this false dichotomy between, you know, I could develop an algorithm to do a particular thing, such as predictive policing, or if you tell me that's bad, you're telling me to do nothing. And there's sort of that, that trap. And I think if we can take that more agnostic approach that decenters the technology, there are actually many other pathways for using algorithms that might emerge that could be could be more effective at actually trying to prompt uh, prompt social change. Yeah, I think that's an especially pertinent discussion to have today. Just this idea of decentering algorithms, because I think that in many ways technology has become very central to the way the world operates. And so as a result, yes, maybe it's natural to start thinking of technology as a centerpiece of the way we go about doing a lot of things. It's just pervasive in everyday life. Maybe not for everybody, you know, definitely for people who live like cities, have a particular education like you and me, that's more technical. And I think it's maybe also important to recognize that, of course, not everybody is coming to the table with that viewpoint. At the same time, as you said, decentering it, especially for people like us, I think is a really important thing to do. And you you wrote a book in 2019, the same year as Good Isn't Good Enough, where I think you also make this articulation, right? The Smart Enough City. And you discuss that shift from valuing technologies and end it itself to using it, like you're saying here, on the periphery, more in conjunction with other forms of social change. And one one reason that this articulation stuck out to me, and I guess this book at this period in time was the idea of a smart city has always seemed futuristic. But I think that even in 2019, but definitely today, it seems to be becoming more and more real with the presence of self-driving cars and different companies getting permits to operate those in cities without somebody in the driver's seat. So they're now, you know, roaming the streets in Bay Area and Beijing around the world. We have governments and companies around the world using real-time facial recognition systems that are appearing in the news. There are parts of China you can look at where it seems like things are a real-life panopticon. I'd love if you could tell me a little bit more of about that concrete vision, just about the future of, of the city. You know, it sounds like you've done some work in urban policy and planning and sort of what that looks like in regards to 
the the decentering of of the algorithm and of technology within the realm of of social change and mm-hmm. the development of the city. Yeah, I think it's a really, I would say, smart cities are sort of at this crossroads where you know I think the 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 earlier wave that I was one of a number of people critiquing the very tech forward movement you know th- there's those sorts of approaches that have been you know certainly critiqued by a number of scholars and activists and journalists at this point and you know we've seen efforts like you know even since since I, I wrote the book and it came out I mean really the big change that I've noticed has been in much more concerted public organizing against smart city efforts. The most notable instance of this was in Toronto, where the city was partnering with Sidewalk Labs and sort of one of the most ambitious, you know, sort of smart corner of the city from the ground up developed by Sidewalk Labs, uh, which is an alphabet company. And organizers in Toronto were able to push back on that project sufficiently such that, that it was actually ended Sidewalk Labs backed out of the project. And there have been other similar instances in San Diego and other places against the surveillance technology that was being used. So those those efforts certainly have not, you know, canceled all of these efforts at smart cities that are really technology centric and surveillance heavy, but have at least put some countervailing power and public energy and pressure against those efforts. But, but I think, yeah, the question is then, where does it go from here? Um, I think many are still, many companies and many cities and organizations are still interested in the idea of smart cities. And there's really the question now, of what is the pivot? Like, where, where do they go from here? And I haven't seen much in the way of robust proposals that are really following the, the principles of smart enough cities that I lay out in the book. I think there's a lot of sort of more, more small pivots that use rhetoric that sort of presents technology as being decentered, but doesn't actually decenter technology. So I'm on a lot of calls and panels and workshops where I'll hear folks say, you know, when you talk about smart cities, what we really mean is smart citizens or, you know, smart cities. When we're talking about smart cities, of course, the technology is not the answer. The technology is only as good as it solves uh, actual social problems. We shouldn't just have the technology for technology's sake. But, but then what they're talking about in the vast majority of their presentation are a bunch of technological case studies or many case studies of how technology was used to improve urban living and really still with living, operating within that frame of technology as the answer um, and centering technology. So yeah, so we've really seen this shift where, yeah, the rhetoric where many folks are rhetorically decentering technology, but I think in practice they're not, which often leads to somewhat awkward sort of conversations in these workshops where on some level we're agreeing with each other, but actually I think we don't agree with each other. And it's like, how can we draw that out to really explain and for me, as, as a scholar in this space, to try to explain, like, what are the differences between what, what I'm trying to push as an agenda and what you're doing as an agenda where you think you're aligned, but you actually haven't fully internalized or learned or at least acted on the, the messages I'm trying to convey. And in part, you know, that those are interesting learning opportunities for me to think about what are the ways in which sometimes all of us in this space can sort of speak at us can can continue to speak at a relatively broad level of generality that um, can enable that sort of fuzzy agreement without sort of practically doing the different thing. So so yeah, there are there remain to be you know innovation and technology and data science teams in a variety of cities, and you know I think that. Yeah, I think what what we will see over the next couple of years are efforts that are sort of smaller scale than something like Sidewalk Labs or the Sidewalk Toronto project, sort of both for good and for bad. So on the good side, I think, you know, there are more and more data science teams in cities like the one I worked on in Boston. And I think those groups are 
generally quite well positioned to be really operating within the context of real problems, thinking about implementation and so on, because they're directly, you know, inside City Hall and working with a particular department and staff that are going to be involved in actually carrying out some of these projects. So I think, you know, part of what part of the positive agenda is more of these small scale targeted projects. But then on the bad side, I think you can also start already start to see how companies like Sidewalk Labs have pivoted away from the all encompassing smart city model to more of a, you know, what I sort of think of as kind of like targeted smart city as a service efforts where they have new products to try to help real estate developers and, uh, and there's other similar types of new tech for landlords and developers uh, and so on to really optimize how they're monitoring tenants and so on. So I think you could start to see more of those smaller scale sector specific smart city efforts that are sort of adhering to the same logics of privatization and surveillance, but maybe don't capture quite the same level of public scrutiny and outrage as some of the larger efforts do. I think that's a really fascinating set of developments in that it seems like the picture you're painting was there's this really expansive vision of a smart city at first that maybe involves collaborations between people on the one hand on the government side and then on the privatization side. And as things evolve, yes, social movements come up and are like, hey, you shouldn't do this. I think other ones to look at are, for example, uprisings against government use of facial recognition, for example. And I think that they've achieved quite a lot in the past few years on that front. But then, as you said, there is a development on the other side of, oh, wait, we can actually restrict this to a set of particular applications for certain businesses. And because it's not as big, we can escape a lot of scrutiny. I think there is also an interesting trend of companies that are maybe doing things that I might find a little bit troublesome that are taking this rhetoric of ethical, responsible AI and using it for their own benefit. So one example that has been used a lot, I think, is this company HireVue in the United States that has, for anyone who might not be familiar, been developing technology that allows companies to sort of automatically scan videos of job seekers, of job candidates, and determine whether they're hireable or not. And a lot of that I think comes out of different branches of research like emotion recognition and the people who are actually doing that research are vocally not very happy with the way their research is being used. But these these sorts of companies have pages on their websites about responsible AI and the fact that their systems have been audited for, for being ethical and things like that. So I think it's interesting to see how the logic on that side, as well as the rhetoric has evolved in response to the concerns people have been raising over mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And I think all of these phenomena are, are quite related. I mean, going back to the city's context first, I mean, we have, yeah, I think part of why we're seeing this shift is because of the existing regulatory and political economic landscape of smart cities, where you know, really, as it stands right now, I mean, technology companies are hugely powerful and have like insane amounts of money, particularly in relation to governments and especially city governments who are dealing with decades of austerity and other forms of uh, neoliberal governance and are quite amenable generally to privatization. So, you know, there's not much in terms of substantive regulation on the technology industry or even on government uses of technology. And so really the only real form of countervailing power at the moment is public organizing, which is why we've seen some of those efforts be successful. And those are you know, incredibly inspirational to have, have observed and, and talked with some of the organizers who are part of that. But you know that is not a desirable or sustainable model for technology governance generally, right? We don't want it to be a, we don't want to live in a society where governments can do something and essentially they can do whatever they want. And if it's bad enough and public enough, then maybe it will get shut down because of public outrage and organizing. That's like really only going to capture particular types of issues and generally only after it's far too late 
you know, where something may have already been implemented for quite some time. And so, you know, we're sort of at this question of how do we, how, how can we shift some of those political, economic, and regulatory landscapes so that we're not only relying on organizing backlash to prevent bad technology and help foster better technology. And I think we're sort of in a similar situation with respect to technology ethics, where, yeah, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of really all the, the much of the growth of ethics as, as a buzzword within technology and AI research and industry. Yeah, earlier this year, I published a, an edited special issue of the Journal of Social Computing all about technology ethics from and had contributions from many other scholars really looking at how ethics has been deployed in the industry and in academia and how that has been quite limited. And from my perspective, I see ethics really as efforts, yeah, somewhat similar as you suggested to some of these smart city efforts among the technology industry to frame the social issues of technology that many in the research community and the public have become aware of and concerned about as issues that can be dealt with internally, matters of self-regulation, and often sort of turning these issues into very technical or procedural challenges uh, related to, you know, algorithmic fairness methods or particular types of worksheets or checklists that sort of are meant to promote ethics. And so, and, and then, you know, there's a very tight link between the industry actors who are pushing ethics and the technology research community that is pushing ethics. And so, um, you know, it's often quite the sort of AI ethics research world is quite closely connected to and even somewhat dependent on these technology companies for funding and legitimacy. But I think, yeah, the, the companies, it's become quite clear when you sort of look at what's going on under the hood, and there's been some great research and journalism about that, that, you know, when push comes to shove, if the ethics teams pose something that conflicts with the business plans or the bottom line, it's very clear, and there's not much of a competition, that the business interest will win over the ethical considerations. And so, you know, I think those sorts of moments are really fruitful for depicting and making clear, yeah, just how much, you know, the ethics is maybe not 100% window dressing, but it's, you know, what are the things that we can do easily without really costing us much and hopefully getting some goodwill and integrating ourselves into the community of researchers but not actually fundamentally changing our practices and so on. Yeah, that's a really important thing to call out. So I guess we can get back to this industry academia ethics discussion and maybe some specifics of what you've written about it. It's that last picture you laid out of when push comes to shove, the actual ethics works falls under the bus. I guess the, the big story in that regard was the Timnit, Jebru and Google fiasco that occurred. And I think that Google seemed to have lost a fair amount of clout, at least among people who are pretty serious about responsible AI. And that really was an interesting story. At the same time, it's, I suppose, what you'd expect. And I think that has a lot to do with just the incentives of private companies, right? That's something that is difficult to really change. These companies have profitability metrics, they have bottom lines they have to meet. And so, yes, when something that involves ethical AI, that sort of research might have a negative impact on that, then of course, the bottom line is going to get the priority, as you said. And there's a difficult question there, it seems, just in that the incentives of large companies like these are very structured in that way. And there's also that sort of legitimacy that you pointed out in that in the AI industry, there is something really legitimizing about being a research scientist at one of these companies or being affiliated with them. And it gives your work a lot more attention. And so even if you're not affiliated with one of the companies directly or hired by them as a full-time researcher, there is that desire for connection with them. And I think that does influence the kind of work that gets done. 
in a lot of places. That is pretty pervasive in academia these days as well. And I've been thinking about this a lot, but I don't know if I have a good sense yet of of what sort of positive solutions there are to it at this point, because it does seem like this very big incentive problem. And I think that really the only people who can push on this work in a way that doesn't get infected by those incentives have to be really fully independent from this market sort of logic and the funding that comes Mm -hmm. from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's certainly not a you know singular answer to to this issue, but I think it this issue of legitimacy and independence is is one of the central questions facing the field right now. You know, to your point about sort of the the company bottom line versus ethics, that's that's absolutely right. And you know, I think what that highlights for me, sort of pushing connecting to some of the our earlier conversation about expanding these notions of how we think about AI, it really points to the idea that if, we're, if we want to have a conversation about technology ethics, we can't just be thinking about that in the context of a specific, you know, the specific design processes that we follow, or even a specific company uh, that might be designing technology, even though that might you know, be a relevant site for some inquiry related to ethics. If we want to think about technology ethics, we need to think about that much more broadly around the social and political and economic conditions that can foster technology to have more beneficial beneficial social impacts on society. And so that requires a much larger scope than just thinking about fairness or, or something like that, sort of in that are treated as technology design process questions of ethics, but really looking at how can we have ethical principles and values that orient a much wider scope of action related to technology. And so that, you know, we see efforts for regulation, there are efforts around uh, anti-monopoly efforts to further curb these these companies. Uh, The EU is doing much more in terms of regulation on technology and has, you know, fined companies like Google much more aggressively than the U.S. has. Um, now, certainly, you know, all of that is not completely sufficient with just the massive power and scope of these com- companies. Um, I keep wanting to say countries, which I think is just, you know, a, a, a point about how powerful, you know, the major technology companies are. That the Indeed. two words keep getting, you know mixed together in my brain as I try to say them. But but yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, we need to think about all of this much more, much more broadly and not allow ethics to the extent we want ethics to be an organizing principle, which is, I think, an open question. It can't be treated as, you know, ethics is something that Google does or ethics is something that Facebook does. It's ethics as an overarching frame for thinking about a much wider scope of actions to orient technology in more equitable and just and democratic directions. So so then, yeah, I think one of these central tension points as part of that conversation is this issue of funding. I think, you know, we're starting to see a bit more conversation about it, where more scholars are calling it out and both for for themselves. and, And I've seen, you know, scholars who have in the past affiliated with and taken or applied for funding from major technology companies starting to not do that. But also there's been, I'd say, internal debate at a variety of high-profile AI ethics conferences. And you've even seen this in some of the smaller groups around like stu- you know, student groups and, and other more you know, group-specific AI organizations that have either debated whether to continue getting money from groups like Google or Palantir and Facebook, or have actually, uh, in some cases, no longer affiliated themselves with those companies. So I think, you know, that conversation is, is starting to emerge much more robustly, but it's really difficult because, as you said, there's such a widespread norm in computer science and AI research where you know, you go work for these companies, it's common to do internships as a, as a PhD student or an undergrad, 
computer science and data science training programs are very much oriented towards pushing their uh, their students into professional careers in those companies. And, you know, I've seen that many of the PhD students who were working on similar topics who are around my, my cohort and working on similar topics, many of them have gone into industry rather than academia. Now, in part, that's a reflection of, you know, issues of precarity and discrimination within academia. But, you know, it's a reflection of just how much the industry has really scooped up and managed to control a great deal of the research and practice and policy efforts around ethics and fairness as particular organizing principles for AI research. And so I think this this is building towards a much more concerted fight and debate within the field. Um, and I'm not sure when and how that will bubble up, but I do think the, the contradictions in some of these practices and partnerships are, are growing and are going to lead to, to more debate. Um, and if nothing else, it'll be really, it'll be a huge improvement even just to have more research calling this out and more opportunities to uh, debate this more, more openly and start to uh, you know, challenge research that is too closely affiliated with or connected to the industries that it's supposed to be scrutinizing. Agreed. I think one of the big things there and one thing that I hope might end up becoming a more positive sort of solution is some sort of change in the allocation of resources. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but if you are studying ethics and fairness today, a lot of the problems around fairness and interpretability, at least many people working on them, are interested in applying them to, well, present-day deep learning systems. And of course, only a subset of companies are going to have the resources for you to look at GPT-3 or some super large model that just takes a stupid amount of money to train. And so there's also this inherent limitation in that if you really, really want to study large language models, and some of their social implications, some of the problems that might come up with them, there's only a certain set of places in which you can actually use those models at their full scale. And I think that places a set of limits. And so I feel that if there is able to be funding in other places, I don't have those sorts of affiliations, there, there might be some promise for people to be able to go study those really interesting questions elsewhere. I think one one cool example of this is Anthropic. So I know that they are very much AI safety focused, but they are interested in studying these very mechanistic level interpretability questions surrounding large language models. And they have received an incredible amount of funding without any plans to turn a profit for the company whatsoever. Now, that is probably not super sustainable. And I don't know what exactly is going to happen with that company going forward, but it's interesting to see an example of a company that has raised a sufficient amount of funding to actually study these things without any plans to turn a profit. And my suspicion is maybe what that looks like is a company like Anthropic gets formed around a particular research agenda or set of research items they plan to pursue. They draw that kind of funding and then they pursue that research agenda, hoping to complete it before the funding runs out or something of the sort. And that, that would be something really interesting to see, I guess, because especially looking at Anthropic in particular, the level of talent they have is pretty incredible. And I think that's an important thing for pushing forward these sorts of research agendas. So I do wonder if that picture of a company that is really organized around executing on a particular project or agenda in the domain of something like interpretability, like fairness, like ethics, is a sort of framework that could arise in the future. I don't know that that'll happen, but it seems like an interesting sort of solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting model and example. And I think, yeah, you're right. It'll be really fascinating to see how that, how Anthropic progresses and what the story is in five years. I mean, much of what you're describing also sounds like, you know, research at a university where you're able to pull in funding money potentially from different sources than maybe a group like Anthropic, but pull in uh, funding and then you have a research agenda 
and the goal is not to turn a profit. And you can, you know, potentially push in different types of directions there in terms of building systems. But yeah, I mean, this question of, yeah, I think it's, it's really important to hone in on this issue of how much the, how much advantage there is in terms of compute power and data from either working within or partnering with companies like Google and Facebook. And, you know, this actually strikes me not as an entirely new problem. I mean, when I was early in sort of the the 2010s where there was all of the buzz around computational social science and social networks, there was a similar story where there was sort of a a steady stream of science and PNAS and nature papers that were essentially published as we had access to all of this data from Facebook or all of this data from Twitter or Google search. And here are some interesting insights that we've discovered about humanity and the social sciences because we have big data. And that was sort of the height of the big data craze. And so you have entire, it felt like entire research streams and very high profile careers that were, you know, in part based on access, you know, private access to proprietary data. And that's maybe not the entire story, right? Obviously those researchers had, you know, interesting ways of asking questions and so on, but there was the, the buzziness that leads to those papers and venues like science around, we have this great data. And I think you see something similar today where, you know, we have access to so much more compute power and so much more data that we can train these deep learning models to do something better than maybe some academic researchers could operating on their own. But, you know, is that a matter of theoretical sophistication or is that just a brute force resources problem? So, you know, it's important to, to call that out, I think, to think about how, you know, part of responding to these issues might mean also being really thoughtful and concerted and shifting the types of values that we even place on research and what types of research is valued. You know, I, I think you could, you know, develop a story that, you know, points to how even the idea that this type of, you know, it's not just the case that, oh, uh, independent researchers are so limited compared to industry researchers because we don't have access to the data, we don't have access to the compute power. On the one hand, that's true, but there's also the question of why is that the deter- a determining factor? Or why is the research that depends on this proprietary big data or proprietary compute power so valued over others, right? How That's maybe an interesting example of the industry not just you know, actually shaping the the values and goals of the research community by helping to make certain types of findings and applications more valued and buzzy and exciting than others. And, and then, you know, I think one response to that is to think about what are other ways of asking research questions that might not require those sorts of massive, you know, massive models, right? What are maybe the the particular insights or, or from a you know deep learning perspective, what are the ways of doing research in more constrained environments and so on? And I think you know if you're also thinking about real world applications, what is the value of applications that are requiring these incredibly massive compute powers? And also, what might be places where you know you actually want to think about computing uh, applications that require more limited and sparse computing environments because that might match many more real world contexts. So. Also, I think there's an importance not just to try to level that playing field according to those dimensions, but also to try to shift the playing field so that the dimension on which the industry is incredibly advantaged is maybe no longer the most important dimension for determining high profile and successful research. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that there certainly is that kind of motive, even for academic researchers. So... To your point about all of this, for example, when I raised that idea of, you know, a company organizing funding around this and you're like, that's basically just academia. That's also maybe an example of, you know, thinking along particular lines. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's so much wrapped up in that of it seems like the correct way to do things or the most high profile way to do things is to form, you know, a company to get venture funding, that that's the route you have to go. And 
that's maybe just an example that, again, is a through line through all of your work of how, as a community, we're often just sitting in the questions that are guided by the way things are, the way that research and academia and the problems around us are already structured. But in so much of your work, and right now too, you're asking us to think at a more meta level, to take a step outside that, to think, are we asking the right research questions? How am I asking these questions? And to think about that as well, which I think is really important. And I think that many of us, I certainly do, lack practice in doing. And I I do really appreciate your work on that front. I realize we're running out of time here. And there's a lot of your work that I was hoping to get into about you know substantive algorithmic fairness and all of that, which I think would be really exciting for our, our listeners to look at. So I do want to say thanks again for getting on this podcast. I really appreciated your time and am a huge fan of your work. So this was a really great conversation to have. If our listeners are interested in learning more about your work or uh, if there are any you know particular highlights that you think uh, might be interesting for them to look at, where, where would you suggest they go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, just want to say, yeah, thanks so much for this conversation. I totally agree. We could go on easily for another hour and it would be great. So hopefully we can do this again sometime. You know, I I think in terms of particular outputs, I mean, so yeah, so my book, The Smart Enough City is, uh, was published by MIT Press. It's open access. So you can read the whole thing online. There's the special issue of the Journal of Social Computing on uh, technology ethics that provides a number of different perspectives on, you know, not starting from the idea of what does philosophy, sort of a very philosophical perspective, but really starting from the perspective of what does tech ethics actually look like as a real world phenomenon and how can we analyze it and critique it? And then, you know, uh, I would say, yeah, there, I have a paper sort of getting to as a first step towards getting to some of these questions around algorithmic thinking and its limits uh, called algorithmic realism. And that uh, is sort of the first place where I've laid out a bit more fully some of these ideas around how we might take a broader scope to thinking about algorithms in order to develop them in a more socially responsible manner without, you know, throwing out the entire practice and, and doing nothing. So, so those are a couple of a couple of things. All of that is pretty easy to find uh, on my on my personal website. Awesome. I'll make sure to include in the show notes your personal website as well as those links. I second that algorithmic realism. I thought that was a really incredible paper. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles from the Gradient.pub and our substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you liked the episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and feedback. See you in the next episode.